listening to BuddhistGeeks.com, January 22nd, 2007. Episode 3, Phil Stanley on the Development of Western Buddhism. In this episode, Ryan Olke interviews Phil Stanley, a graduate professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhism at Naropa University, teacher at Natarta Institute, and doctoral candidate at the University of Virginia. In addition to Indo-Tibetan Buddhist studies, Phil is an expert in Tibetan language and translation. In this podcast, Phil shares how he became a practitioner and his passion for establishing Buddhist study in the West. Phil also shares his thoughts on the development of Western Buddhism. This is part one of a three-part series. If you're interested in sponsoring our podcast, please visit www.buddhistgeeks.com forward slash advertise. Well, it um, all goes back to my brother. I have an older brother who's two and a half years older. Uh, he went to Karma Cholang in the, or Tale of the Tiger. So he got the first brochure to Naropa in 74, and he showed it to me and um, decided I would go. I was actively looking for you know, a spiritual tradition. Almost immediately I knew that uh, I wanted to study with Trumpa. It, it, it was quite interesting because they were alternating Ram Das one night and he would teach the other night. And uh, Trumpa's knife, uh, night, it was uh, like a razor blade. He was so scathing about what you thought you were getting out of in it. You know, the spiritual materialism history was no holes barred. He was just uh, extremely... Um, Blunt, you know, and honest and direct about, you know, what do you think spirituality is about? You know, I became a student at Trump at that point. I graduated from college as quickly as I could and moved uh, to Boston. There was a Boston Dharmadatu and started being involved with sitting there and go to Karmachilling and stuff. Uh, I started studying uh, Sanskrit and Tibetan with Harvard graduate students because I was interested in language and thinking of going on to study doctorate, you know, sort of stuff for uh, Buddhist studies. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I had to make a living, and one thing led to another. I ended up in a consulting firm, and and um, so I decided to, because um, of the Shambhala tradition that was emerging in the, from Trungpa about taking our Western world seriously, that we are Westerners and having an uplifted life, that I thought, well, I'm going to go into business school being a Buddhist and a Shambhalian person. So I got into the University of Michigan, and uh, was the top ten school at the time. It's number one now, so... But uh, and I was an honor student at it. I was courted by IBM and all these large companies. I went to work for GE, oh. but I, I really didn't like it that much. And I was in Dharmadatu. I did my uh, prostrations uh, during business school. I finished my Nindra actually during business school. <laughs> None of them knew I was doing it, but uh, um, so I was very actively, you know. And I became a Shambhala director during business school too. I would go to Chicago. I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and on weekends and help with lead, uh, you know. Shambhala trainings and stuff, and eventually was approved as a director. So all through the business process, I was very much a Buddhist, you know, practicing and studying. So, um, But I was pretty, um, I, I wasn't all that happy in it. So I, I moved here to Boulder with some friends and started a Buddhist, Buddhist company called Gold Mountain. And um, after a while, uh, when Trumpa died, I was asked to run the finances of the cremation, because I have finance background, accounting background as part of my... So I did that. And then they asked me to move to Halifax and become head of the finance for all of Rajadatu. So I did that, you know, continuing to teach and all this stuff. And I'd always said I wanted to go back and study Tibetan and Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. When all hell broke loose around around, um, the regent, all the controversies around the regent, um, fundraising, of course, started crashing. (laughs) You know, being head of finances was a, a difficult job and a lot of mistrust and certain amount of aggression was coming at me just from, by virtue of my position. You know? But I'm, I don't, 
I'm fairly even tempered, so I was the reason. Actually, I was a good person for that environment. And uh, uh, when we got through the worst of it, after it, I decided that um, they didn't need me anymore. It was a much smaller organization at that point, and my assistant was a very capable person. And I talked to Howard, and I said, "I think Howard, you can do this <laughs> this position. They don't need both of us." And uh, I want to go back. To, I want to go to graduate school and study Tibetan and Sanskrit. And in particular, I was interested in the academic, the Shedra tradition. You know, Trungpa had loved his Shedra tradition. Uh, it was a deep you know, part of his training, the deep uh, intellectual study, and he had a real passion for it. And so I felt uh, personally that I wanted further training like that. So in the t- and many of the great teachers in Tibet were, um, were in fact, part of their training was the Shedra training. And that's not to say by any means it's not a requirement to be a great teacher. Of course not. You know, you have many great teachers who weren't particularly Shedra people. But in the Tibetan environment, you have this wide range of paradigms of what it is to be a master, you know, a highly realized being. And it's not an accident that a good number of them had a lot of deep training, intellectual training from the Shedra tradition. And um, so it was my feeling that this was actually poorly understood in the West. And was something that was uh, needed in the West, and that um, Westerners are a bit naive about. They they buy into the rhetoric when when Zen says, you know, just sit, don't try to be a Buddha, just just sit, just be the Buddha. Yeah. Well, in fact, and and Dzogchen, you know, spontaneously self enlightened, self liberated, you know, these sort of discourses. That in fact, there's huge amount of exertion and huge amount of scholarly traditions in these traditions. The Zen tradition is one of the great ironies. Is is, is has the most vast literature of all the East Asian schools. It's got a huge quantity of literature. And it's like the uh, rabbinical scholars, you know, commenting, they have commentaries and commentaries and commentaries. You have a little nugget of the Torah in the center of the page and then multiple layers of commentary by great rabbis around it. Well, that's what the Zen tradition does, too. They have all these commentaries on commentaries and commentaries. And they have a sort of vivid, personal, pithy quality to them. But nonetheless, this is very active intellectual tradition and tremendous volume of writings in the Zen tradition. And Westerns are pretty clueless that this is, in fact, the case. And um, and the same thing with Dzogchen. Dzogchen has a, a long-standing uh, study tradition, you know, very long-standing study tradition, very profound. Uh, Longchenpa was a brilliant philosopher as well as a brilliant poet and a highly realized person. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's something, there's, we lose something in the Western tradition if we can't understand that Buddhism is far more complex than our sort of Protestant, naive, simplistic uh, approach. Right. You know, that everything is the lowest common denominator and let's just sit. I think that's a deeply impoverished form of Buddhism. And there needs to be room for the full display of it. And it's not that everybody needs to be a scholar, absolutely not again, but uh, if we can have context and places for people who have the disposition and capacities and interests to pursue advanced study, that that will enrich the overall, and it will produce the occasional great teacher. And three-year retreat and other things will also produce great teachers too. It just It's not just one route. But we don't have to be simplistic about it and try to reduce it to some sort of simplistic version of what Buddhism is. So, mm-hmm. so that's why uh, that was part of my own personal motivation to go on for a doctorate program was at Virginia. I went to the University of Virginia to study with Jeffrey Hopkins in the program that he had developed because it was Shadra based. Uh, I wanted that training, not knowing if I would become a professor or not. That was like secondary to me. Actually, I, I felt I wanted to try to help us found Shadras which would be vastly transformed. We won't do a Western-style, I mean, a Tibetan-style right. process. That's, 
more so what you're doing with Natarta. Yes, uh yes, yes. So that's how I got involved with Natarta. That was exactly... I had had the motivation to do this before Natarta was founded, about five years before Natarta was founded. But it was precisely that, helping such institutions, that I had decided to uh, get out of business, get out of managing things, and uh, go back and get a doctorate. So, What do you think has changed for Buddhism as it's come to the West, and what might change or what needs to change? Anything you have experienced around that? As you mentioned, like the Shedra approach would be different for us. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, um, there's a lot of um, communities, just to talk about the Tibetan Buddhist uh, communities in the West, there's, you know, there's a range of different communities that have different ethoses, and uh, some of them are very uh, more, much more traditional and others are less. In the case of Trungpa, he very early on, he right from the start said do everything in English and felt very strongly, very clearly, that English is capable of being a fully, or um, is fully capable of expressing the Dharma and that therefore we shouldn't hold back. He was more interested in communicating in English, having people study in English, trusting Westerners that they could, they could um, you know, understand the Dharma in English. Whereas other communities uh, are feel very um, devoted to this, this Tibetan language, the sacredness of the Tibetan language. Uh, there's some feeling that the Tibetan language is very blessed by all its centuries of having great masters and so forth. So some Western communities f- really feel like that they should practice their text in Tibetan, mm-hmm. and often in phonetic renderings if the person can't read the Tibetan, and they have very little understanding or the, the amount of their capacity to understand what they're doing varies significantly by the amount of time that's put into explaining them or translating right. commentaries and stuff. So there can be some severe different difficulties in terms of uh, understanding of text. So there's still some struggle or you know differences of approach on this front. Um, and I think slowly the English is, is definitely going to win out here. Uh, another dimension is things like pra- uh, protectors, you know, so that some right. people, some sanghas are just really seriously engaged in these things. And in other sanghas, there's much more, um, you know, psychological orientation to these mm-hmm. things, or, or it's less emphasized. It's, it's, it's like they might do it, but it's not this huge deal that this is utterly essential to Buddhism. Um, you know, the Dalai Lama said, we can't tell what's, what's Buddhism and what's Tibetan culture. It's not a literal quote, but he said, you know, that you Westerners have to sort it out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which was interesting, yeah, because yeah. you think he'd be, you know, an authority, but uh-huh. for them, it's all tied into their culture, and, you know, how much is the deity, or the uh, protector supplication thing, a Tibetan cultural phenomena, and not essential Buddhism or not, and Westerners would answer to, the, you know, give different answers to that, probably. Mm-hmm. So there's a real sorting out of, you know, there's differences among the sanghas about these things. Um, other areas, um, it really is a touchy one is, uh, you know, a belief in rebirth. In Asia, if you don't believe in rebirth, you're not a Buddhist. You know, it's just a real simple. It's just how, you, how could you call yourself a Buddhist? For Westerners, there's a huge amount of variation on this. They might be deeply committed to practicing Buddhism and not be willing to say, I, I, I firmly believe in rebirth. Mm-hmm. You know, there might be skepticism or agnosticism or whatever, but so it's a much more a diverse group of people. Do you find that this is becoming a more open topic in discussing the development of Western Buddhism, uh, mm-hmm. like these issues? Because it's, at times it seems that, as you mentioned, there's a bit of sacredness mm-hmm. to not just the language, but 
practices in general mm-hmm. that um, maybe there's resistance to change because there's that perception that it's sacred as it is and so nothing should be changed but then there's this question of what's culture mm-hmm. and what's the essence of Buddhism mm-hmm. and so do you feel that it's, it varies it just varies between the communities or that well certainly the, the openness to discussing change varies mm-hmm. it's between communities right. yeah, there's more sensitivity uh, there's some touchiness about such subjects mm-hmm. I mean one of the, when you study the history of Buddhism you realize how much creativity and change that occurred over time really right. you know whether you want to talk about even in India the emergence of uh, Nagarjuna and the emergence of Asanga mm-hmm. uh, these major schools and in Tibet Tsongkhapa's interpretation of Madhyamaka tremendous creativity uh, you know you could criticize it for being innovative not in the texts and or you can say this is very insightful profound in its own right and it's a different way of going at it and what's the problem mm-hmm. you know so the and Dolpopa you know he argues uh, the founder of Shintong uh, argues that uh, by quoting the sutras and tantras that his assertions about a permanent truly existent blissful self, whatever, uh, is in the sutras, and, uh, uh, you know, the, I was just reading Dujam Rinpoche, he was being quoted by Carl Brynhosel in his book on Kagyu Madhyamaka, where um, Dujam is talking about this very issue. So even a Tibetan, a major Tibetan master, talking about the creativity and change in the mm-hmm. tradition, and that you don't need to take sides or take sectarian Right. But uh, so it's a healthy thing to acknowledge the creativity in Buddhism, mm-hmm. and if that's the case, then and uh, you also get this in China, and you know, with the emergence of Zen as a tradition, with the emergence of Pure Land Buddhism, uh, the uh, Lotus Sutra, devotion to the Lotus Sutra, these massively important schools that have a lot of uh, creativity to them. And the virtual disappearance of Madhyamaka in China, whereas it's huge, huge importance in Tibet. So vastly diff- vast differences between Chinese Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism. So w- why would we expect anything other than significant change in Buddhism coming to right. the West? Right. I mean, why this is going to happen? It will happen. There will be major differences. Uh-huh. Um, Jose Cabazon, uh, who's now professor at uh, Santa Barbara University, California, Santa Barbara, was here at Ilef College in Denver. Um, came and gave a talk here at Naropa talking about ethics in the issue of gay, you know, homosexuality and Buddhism. Right. And he was raising the point that it was his perspective that if you have a critical mass of people who are deeply Buddhist-based, mm-hmm. who articulate a new vision of Buddhism, that that's how Buddhism proceeds. That's what creates Madhyamaka. Uh-huh. That's what creates the Yogacaran school. And that uh, from the ethical side, that Western Buddhists could forge a new ethic about sexuality. Uh-huh. As long as it's deeply Buddhist-based, it's Buddhist. So that's just one example of how Buddhism can transform Right. But it has to be some sort of organic, deeply rooted growth mm-hmm. for it to, um, you know, be Buddhist to remain Buddhist in some way. So my view is that that, that views like Madhyamaka, I think there's some significant issues around the way Madhyamaka is presented, and um, I, I think it's going to change. It's going to change actually how people understand Madhyamaka will change. The same is for epistemology. You know, like cognitive science has a huge amount to say right. about, and there's a huge amount of connection with the Buddhist view of, of epistemology, of tsema, valid cognition. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to see a lot of innovation 
there to the benefit of Buddhism. It'll be more developed and more interesting and more more subtle. So I think there'll be lots of change coming up, and that's what Buddhism does. It's like nothing weird. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by C for Chaos. For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.cforchaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.